I wanted to welcome you to this, my second home, first yes. stage. And I wanted to introduce you to my dear Sherry williams Connell. We work together in community engagement, and she's also like, she's a Renaissance woman. She writes, acts, sings, um, directs, and uh, goes to our schools to teach our, uh, to the RMPS schools to teach theater techniques to help them to, to just enhance the curriculum and give them self-confidence and all kinds of magic that she works at the schools. Um, and so she has a wonderful presentation prepared for you. Welcome to the Milwaukee Youth Arts Center, the home of the Milwaukee Youth Symphony Orchestra and First Stage, and also a part of the Bronzeville neighborhood, both historically and currently as Bronzeville begins to rebuild in our history. What I'm going to give you is a brief overview of uh, Milwaukee's civil rights uh, movement, particularly as it pertains to the Bronzeville community. And it's a pictorial presentation, which means I have borrowed from all over Google, just like you would do. Yes? Uh, so I'm so grateful to the Wisconsin Historical Black Society, to the Wisconsin Historical Society, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Milwaukee Courier, you name it. If it's a periodical, I have borrowed from it. So that's some of what you're going to see today. Um, I'm going to begin with a map that was actually created by um, Lucia Lozanos, and it's a part of a piece of literature that I'm going to hope that you will leave with today. It's from a, uh, a Welcome to Bronzeville presentation that was created here for First Stage uh, last season. But we've continued to use this guide. It's a legend of historic Bronzeville and also contains a present day businesses. Uh, Bronzeville that we're looking at from the civil rights history of Milwaukee was bounded by Juneau to the south, Brown Street to the north, to the east King Drive, which was then 3rd Street, and then 12th Street to the west. So that's what you see represented here in this legend. And it is in the material that you will be able to take home with you today. One of the most famous residents of Bronzeville, of course, was Golda Meir. And our Fourth Street School was renamed in her honor. I look at her as a civil rights icon because of her advocacy, not only for her faith, for her people, but also for African people on the continent as well as African Americans. We look at the, the relationship between African Americans and Jewish people, looking at the history, the commonality and the struggles, and even today, the persecution that is, seems to be uh, resurging in, um, throughout the United States and through the diaspora. Even if you looked at the news last week, what's going on in Europe right now, in France in particular. Um, if you look at one of the photos, you'll see Matty Ellis, our jazz legend, who is now um, getting ready to turn 85. He was a neighbor of Golda Meir, who he called Goldie. And in fact, Goldie, as he called her, was one of his babysitters. She was the neighborhood babysitter. And he said, during this time, when people would leave, they didn't lock their doors. And they would say, I'm going to go out for 30 minutes, for an hour, will you look after my child? And Goldie, with her switch in hand, would keep the neighborhood kids under control. Yes, gold in my ear, Goldie. 
Uh, CL and Cleopatra Johnson were not only uh, entrepreneurs with the ideal tailors, which at first was on Wells Street and then moved to King Drive or Third Street. If you drive down Third Street, you can still see a sign that says Taylor's. That was where their shop was. They were also active in founding, uh, be a part of the founding of the Milwaukee Urban League and the NAACP. As were Wilbur and Artie Halliard, who came here from Augusta, Georgia, after graduating from Morehouse College, Spelman, and Atlanta University, and founded the Columbia Savings and Loan to be a lending institution for African Americans and other people of color who could not get, at that time, loans um, so that they could purchase homes and get business loans. So it was uh, Artie and Wilbur Halyard that founded the Columbia Savings and Loan that by the time of 1960 had over a million dollars uh, in their assets, which they never paid themselves. Uh, up until the, the mid-1960s. All the, the money that was made through the savings and loan, they put right back into the business. Um, I can tell you my family um, banked at Columbia Savings and Loan and continues to, and in fact, my mother had a baker's dozen of china and silver um, settings that were premiums. <laughs> as a part of every time you had a passbook account and you would uh, make a deposit. But there again, because of the unfair housing practices in Milwaukee, Wilbur and Artie Halyard, and lending practices, Wilbur and Al, uh, Artie Halyard established Columbia Savings and Loan. Mary Allen Shad, another, and I'm very proud to say this, I'm a Spelman grad. She also is a Spelman College grad. Uh, founded the, the Wisconsin Negro Business Directory, and it was published for a number of years in the same um, idea as the Green Book. It was to help new people of color coming to Wisconsin know where they could safely bank, do business, where they could um, gather socially, where the churches and other place houses of worship were. This was Mary Allen Shad's. Um, business directory. She was also a journalist helping to found the Milwaukee Courier. In the um, Wisconsin Business Journal, you would see this photo during the 1950s of the Urban League's Women's Guild. Founded, the National Urban League was founded in 1909 and the Milwaukee Urban League uh, established 10 years later and very, uh, at the women, Women are always at the, uh, the, the forefront of almost any movement. And this is true also for the Milwaukee Urban League. The women sacrificed and contributed to the building of the Urban League, which existed to help people of color coming from the south to the north adjust to society, this new society that they were a part of and the neighborhoods as did the NAACP, which the Milwaukee branch was founded in 1924, assist with legal aid, helping to understand um, your rights in this new um, part of the country that you're living in, in this city, this urban environment, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You look at that name, Theodore Cox, yes, he is a part of the famous Cox family. He not only was an attorney, but was a longtime president of the Milwaukee NAACP. 
Felmers Cheney was the first um, African-American sergeant on the police force of Milwaukee. Sergeant Cheney lived in Bronzeville, served Bronzeville, and also was an, became, after his retirement, a NAACP president for a number of years. In fact, for a while we called him Mr. NAACP. Here's a picture of, of him. He's in the in the row standing second to, let's see, to your left. There he is, very tall, he had quite a presence, but as imposing as he could be, he had a very gentle spirit. And in fact, the, he would say, I'm big and I'm bad, but I was fair. And kids really respected him. He would get down on their level, get down on a knee and talk with them. And if you look in front, you'll see that woman sitting there, Vernice Gallimore. Vernice Gallimore was actually hired by the Milwaukee Police Department, one of the first women to serve in the capacity of like a recording secretary. She kept everything above board as far as recording incidents, recording the numbers, of keeping statistics on the number of people of color uh, who worked and women who worked for the Milwaukee Police Department and incidents. Anything that happened, she kept a record of it. This is the Bronzeville of, that we are most familiar with from the 1950s and 60s. You see the Regal Theater, and if you even think about the name Bronzeville, first it was in, in Chicago, then it came to Milwaukee, adopted by Milwaukee. So there's a huge uh, Bronzeville community in Chicago. We have a Milwaukee Bronzeville, a be beautiful Regal Theater in Chicago. We have a Regal Theater here. So there were some, some influences from Chicago, but um, what is it that uh, imitation is the best form of flattery? Yes. The civil rights movement uh, in Milwaukee was a response to some very pivotal moments in Milwaukee's history. First of all, you see the, the picture of the young man with the hat, Daniel Bell, who was uh, killed during a, an incident uh, involving the police in 1958. Uh, if you know anything about this story, uh, he was a young man who the police were chasing, um, he was ended up getting shot by a police officer, and the idea was that he uh, was shot in self-defense. He was found with a knife in his right hand, but as a matter of fact, he was left-handed. So it was very clear that the knife had been planted, and uh, over 50 years later, finally there was some justice for the family, and there again, the arts responding to this social issue created a play. Uh, there, uh, there was a, a play that was uh, commissioned, I believe, by Chamber Theater, uh, highlighting this incident in Milwaukee's history in race relations. Also, you, you see the group of people that are marching for fair housing. There was a policy of redlining uh, based upon insurance. Um, statistics that were used against people of color, particularly African Americans, that made it difficult to purchase homes and to get fair insurance prices. Um, and then there was the incident that was the demise, led to the demise of Bronzeville, and that was the construction of I-43, the north-south freeway that went straight through the heart of Bronzeville. As a response to all of this, 
uh, Dr. King was called to come and visit Milwaukee. And I'd so loved being at um, Praying With Their Feet last Sunday. Um, so I, I'm hoping I'm not repeating too much of this for you. But I want to say first, Dr. King came to Milwaukee in 1957 and was at the Grand Avenue Church, which is now the Irish Cultural Center. That was the first place he was invited to speak and address uh, the various issues relating to race relations here in, in Milwaukee. And then he was invited by his college roommate, um, Dr. William Finlayson, to come and speak at the Milwaukee Auditorium which is now, I think, the Panther Arena or the Milwaukee, no, it's the Milwaukee Theater, BMO Theater, Harris, BMO Harris Theater today. But look at the crowd he drew in 1964. And while he was there, um, there was pushback, of course, from the, the community, making sure that those elected officials knew that they were serious about the policies being changed that were affecting their quality of life. And here's a, if you look in the photo, uh, standing right behind Dr. King, there is Dr. William Finlayson. Another photo from Dr. King speaking. At this particular um, event, this is when he made a statement, and I'm paraphrasing, in which he said, if you're going to, to be willing to stand for something, you have to be willing to die for it or else um, it is, you're doing it without any conviction. You, if it's worth standing for, it's worth dying for. If it's living for, it's worth dying for. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but um, he, when, when Dr. King came to Milwaukee, he was so moved, he coined a lot of phrases. And in fact, in 1966, I believe, when he returned to Milwaukee and went to the University of Wisconsin uh, here in, in Milwaukee, UWM, that's where he coined the phrase, Milwaukee is the Selma of the North. Ah, I think you recognize Mr. Ben Barkin. Was very also instrumental in um, pushing the relationship between um, African American people of African heritage and Jewish people in Milwaukee, working together for a common cause. Of course, Father James Grothy. The, the role of the religious people in this movement, believers across different um, denominations and faiths, really galvanized this movement. And Father Grothy truly sacrificed. Uh, his position in the um, Catholic Church by his association with the African American Freedom Movement here in Milwaukee. He was very instrumental in supporting the Commandos, which was the Milwaukee version of the Panthers, uh, the Black Panthers. And uh, I have a beautiful memory of Father Grappi. After the 1967 uprising, the Academy for Beauty and Culture, where I studied ballet, <laughs> was, um, was sacrificed, it was burned. And Father Grappi, this was, like I said, 1967, I was eight years old, Father Grappi allowed um, Wardell Anderson, who was a parishioner at St. Boniface, his church uh, that Father Grappi was the, the parish priest, allowed us to come and take ballet lessons uh, that summer in the basement of St. Boniface Catholic Church. 
and this is where I learned the genuflect. I'd never heard of that before. <laughs> but also the commandos, because Father Rocky's church was always threatened with fire bombings, the Milwaukee commandos would walk through and, I, I, wait a second, I see, hello, how are you, Peggy? <laughs> I'm speaking of your history. You should be up here with me. But Father Graffi um, allowed us, as I said, to take the ballet lessons, Wardell Anderson teaching there. But the commandos had to walk through the church to make sure it was safe before we could come in. There he is. I look at his face. He's so committed, passionately committed, committed to this cause. And right on the front lines. It was the movement. If you look at these faces, look how young they are. Much like the civil rights movement in um, Montgomery and Selma, after the adults had done all they could do and sacrificed all they could, the children had to take over. The Children's Crusade of the South, very much like the crusade of the Milwaukee Commandos and the NAACP Youth Council here in Milwaukee, it was the young people that came out in the greatest numbers and took over the mantle of the responsibility of leadership for this great cause. Fair housing, the end of housing segregation. We often think that segregation was in uh, the South because we see the Jim Crow signs, but it was the signs you could not see. It was the covert racism that was practiced here in Milwaukee that was so damaging to the progress of, uh, of people of color. And when I say people of color, I'm talking about uh, all, and not only African Americans, but Latinos. I'm talking about Native American, and as well as the Jewish population as well um, here in Milwaukee. There were sundown laws. These were understood that at, after sundown, you were not supposed to be in certain neighborhoods. And this was certainly true about the south side of Milwaukee. That 16th um, Street Bridge, which now is the Father, Graffi, Father James Graffi Bridge, um, it was understood that even if you had work there, if you had something legitimate that took place, it needed to take place before sundown or else you were going to be in trouble. My father worked for Rex Chainbelt um, Church, uh, the Rex Chainbelt Corporation, it's called Rex North now, and he worked um, second shift, but he carpooled with two um, Caucasians. Americans so that there would be a sense of legitimacy or safety going to work and getting off work uh, in, in the evening. A lot of times also the men from Rex Chainbelt would cash their checks on the south side at taverns and so he went into these places to cash his check with I want to say um, a, a buddy or something, someone to help it more to legitimize his presence, his purpose for being there. Uh, also, I can share with you an incident my, my husband experienced, and Don, this was what, 1966, riding his bicycle, and he and his friends were just curious about the beautiful homes on Capitol Drive. And this is when, during a time when black people didn't live on Capitol Drive. 
38th and Roosevelt, excuse me. <laughs> so he was riding his bike and the police pulled him over and said, I mean, you need, and he and his friends had to get on the ground and the whole deal. Um, you need to get back to your neighborhood. They also checked the registration of the bikes to make sure that the boys really owned the bikes. And then they had to quickly come back to um, their neighborhood in Milwaukee. So there were just certain neighborhoods that were not open to people of color being able to purchase and or rent in those neighborhoods. Thank God for then Ms. Val Phillips, who ran for, successfully ran for Alderwoman and was a part of helping to change these unfair housing practices, not only as Alderwoman, but then as Secretary of State of Wisconsin, she was an attorney, or is, I mean, she's still, thank God, she's still with us, walking history among us, but working with Father James Groppy, the NAACP Youth Council, and other organizations. The struggle still continues. We, after the 1967 uprising, uh, and many of the businesses were burned down, uh, many of the businesses then pulled out and went to other places, we're still in the process of rebuilding. And we look at Pete's Market, at Dream Bikes, and even the Milwaukee Youth Arts Center right here on King Drive and Walnut. These are all signs of turning around the Milwaukee, uh, there was the um, Black Hist uh, Holocaust Museum, America's Black Holocaust Museum being rebuilt. Uh, we look at the businesses that are being revitalized. We're thankful for this. But we who believe in freedom cannot rest, just as the song you heard a few minutes being sung by Sweet Honey and the Rock. There's more work to be done, but we cannot do it alone. Alone, We must work together, all of us, from our different ethnic groups, our different cultural groups. But if we believe in freedom, we cannot rest till it comes. Thank you.